0: and welcome to episode 46 of A Positive Podcast. Today's podcast is powered by OKClarity.com and it's sponsored by one of our favorite apps, Tovito. Thank you, Tovito, for once again showing your support and sponsoring another episode. If you'd like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or an upcoming special occasion, or just because you appreciate what we're doing here, please reach out through my website at PositiveCoach.com or you can email me at Riesel at JewishPeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology based life coaching and see if it's a fit for you, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com to set up your free consultation. In today's episode titled From Awareness to Addiction, Educating Our Youth on Addiction, you will hear a conversation between myself and Leanne Foreman about the important work of the CCSA, which stands for Communities Confronting Substance Abuse and Addiction. One of the core ideas of this group is to educate and bring awareness to middle school and high school students about the dangers of addiction and the hope and healing of recovery. I couldn't think of a more appropriate time than the week before Purim to discuss this important topic. The fact is we have an alcohol and substance abuse problem in our communities, one that many of our youth and teens are struggling with in a serious way. Now, this doesn't mean that every single teen and every single person adult has a drinking problem or is addicted to substances, obviously. Yet at the same time, there is much data proving that our communities are struggling with substance abuse in a serious way. I'm not an expert on this topic. I don't have research or data in front of me. Yet the amount of people that I've heard from who have a struggling teen or older adult child or an adult who is abusing substances and is struggling to stay alive seems to be more of an issue than ever before. And I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to kind of create an awareness for themselves and their families around alcohol and substances before this important holiday of Purim. If a friend of yours or a loved one is refusing a drink when you offer it to them, or simply is not taking alcohol, not drinking, remember not to pressure them, not to offer them if they don't want one, to be sensitive that there are people who may be in recovery who may still be struggling with these issues and can use our sensitivity and support. Remember, there are many ways to tap into happiness and joy around Purim besides alcohol. And it's a really good time to have these conversations with our own children, our own teens, about drinking responsibly. What are the dangers involved? Really educating them and having conversations, not obviously preaching to them, but having conversation around this information. If any of you listening are teachers or educators, and you have the ability to bring the CCSA workshop to your school, I strongly encourage you to get in touch with Leanne to arrange this vital and important workshop so that you can help save lives today. Thank you so much for listening. I think you're going to find this episode to be interesting. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. So for starters, if you don't mind, Leanne, to introduce yourself. And tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be doing what you're doing today or how
1: oh wow, I could go back in history. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, well, we won't start with where I was born or anything like that. We'll we'll start right. where the story becomes more relevant. Um my I have five children. My second oldest daughter is in recovery from substance use and addiction, and that really has informed where we are today. Um when we were dealing with this about six years ago really nobody talked about substance use or addiction in the jewish community Um, we live in, in an orthodox jewish community and while i knew of some people who had anxiety and depression and some people who had eating disorders or other mental health issues i really did not know anybody who was struggling with substance use and it happened to be a couple of events that redirected me in the direction I am now. I'm a lawyer by training. I'm a corporate and employment lawyer by training, um, but I now run an organization exclusively dedicated to supporting families who are dealing with substance use and addiction, to educating our children, and we have a full-blown prevention education curriculum from 6th to 12th grade, um, and also doing community awareness and educational events. So how did I end up from, you know, lawyer to where I am now, Two comments that really pushed us in this direction. One was from our local rabbi who, while Ilana was in sober living and rehab down in Florida, asked us how she was doing. And I made a very sarcastic comment and said, you know, rabbi, we're the only people dealing with this. We're the only people. And he kind of shook his head sadly and said, if you only knew. And that confirmed my suspicion that, you know, we were not alone, but it really wasn't spoken about. And the second comment came from my son, who um, is now married and uh, just had a baby four months ago. And at the time, said to me, he tells his friends, you know, when they ask, where's his sister? He says, oh, she's in rehab. And he just answers very openly. And it's a longer conversation than that. But I realized the stigma and the shame really was coming from within and that we needed to tell our story and tell my daughter's story with her permission, of course, and with the permission of my other children. So in April, 2018, we decided to go public with our story. We created a community awareness event, which became the genesis of what is now our organization, CCSA, or Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. And we did this event in a local high school in Teaneck, New Jersey. We had a clinician. We had somebody in recovery. My husband spoke. We had a rabbi from the community, and there were over 700 people in the audience in one evening and another, I think, 300 people online. What started out as, let's just make people aware that this is going on in the Jewish community. Let's tell our story and let's see where this goes. And my husband and I are both very solution-oriented people, so we knew this wasn't going to be a one and done, really is what took
0: us in the direction we are now four years later. I actually heard that um, it's a podcast as well, and I'll link it on the show notes as well. It was incredible. Um, As a mother of a child who's in recovery, um, I found it to be so, I found so many parallels to my life and it was, it was incredible to see such healing. And I'm sure nothing is perfect, obviously, but to see all of you sitting up there and talking in such a clear, comfortable way was so powerful and must've been such a, like a moment for you to, to, to be there. Like what a moment. Like I was, I was, uh, not to, this, for you.
1: I'm giving you the prequel. That's actually the sequel. The prequel was four years ago, four and a half years ago. The sequel was just this last November down in South Florida.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We're going to take a quick break here for a message from our sponsor. OkClarity.com. OKClarity.com is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find a top notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach or nutritionist. And it's completely free. And their professionals are vetted and they have extensive experience working within the Jewish community. So if you're in the market for a therapist or coach, check them out at OKClarity.com. If you yourself are a provider and you're looking to list yourself, check out OKClarity.com. I know that I've been recently listed listed as a coach on OKClarity as well. Also, if you're interested, OKClarity has an amazing WhatsApp status or group with thousands of followers, and their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health, and they post great humor, so you're going to laugh too. So if you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message, and you can be added as well. It's in my show notes as well. So check out OKClarity.com. You know that you won't regret it. another short message from today's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Tovido. Tovido is a wonderful website and app that has hundreds of original and quality videos for Jewish boys and girls. And it's designed to be a safer and simpler place for Jewish kids entertainment. So that you can literally hand the device to your child and be comforted knowing that there are no ads and no inappropriate content. And now as parents, it's really difficult to find content that we approve of. But with Tovido, you won't have to worry about that. What's different about Tobito is that new videos are added weekly and content is produced solely for the subscribers. We're talking live action film, 3D animation, and so much more. My daughters love Tobito and are constantly asking for more time on their device with Tovito. It makes a great gift for the family, so grandparents, if you're listening, parents, it's a wonderful gift. And it's a great tool as you're starting to do Pesach cleaning and we need some time to get things done. There's a huge variety of content that they won't ever be bored. Tobito is usually $99 a year, but you can use a code PP15 for 15% off on tovito.com. And Tobito is available on almost every platform, smart TVs, websites, apps, and it's also available for download so you can use it while you're traveling as well. I want to thank Tobito for being a sponsor again this month. We really appreciate it. And go check them out at Tobito.com.
1: In BRS with Rabbi Goldberg, right.
0: That's, that's what it was, I
1: heard. Right. Yeah, that's so good. that and that was an amazing, amazing experience. And that son who speaks on that panel is the son that made the comment to me, you know, five six years ago that he just sit, speaks openly about his sister being in rehab and it was the catalyst for our coming forward and really opening up ourselves. Um, the event five years ago was kind of you know the precursor to all that. When we spoke on that panel, my daughter is now five years in recovery. Um, She spoke about her own personal experience in addiction. My husband and I have spoken many times in the last five years about our experience. We've never done it in front of her. That was actually a new experience for us that we never gave her our perspective in that way. And none of my children have spoken at all. So my son coming out on that panel was the first time that a sibling was speaking from their perspective. So Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That was, you know, as much as we've been doing this for many years, that was really
0: a novelty for all of us. And I bet so many people gained so much support just from hearing that. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, besides that we share a similar history, having children in recovery, but in your work, you know, speak on the topic of recovery and addiction, you, you cite statistics. um, I've heard in different podcasts that are particularly interesting to me, as a member of the religious community, the firm community, and I think a lot of people don't realize the extent of it and don't understand um, what's what we're really dealing with in our communities, would you be comfortable to share some of these statistics of where we as a firm community compared to the national averages are doing as it relates to alcohol abuse versus substance abuse and what you think the reason for that is? The reasons behind those numbers.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think a lot of um, the data is a little bit anecdotal. Um, there really is, you know, we we do surveys in schools and we survey um, our students. We are now in over 50 schools around the country. Um, within the next couple of months, we will have reached a milestone of educating 10,000 students. And again, our curriculum goes from sixth to 12th grade. So, um, a lot of the data we collect is more anecdotal. Um, there are some some limited studies out there. They're a little bit dated in terms of you know national averages versus Jewish schools, and the selection sample is a little bit smaller than I would like to see. I, you know, I would love to see a broad based effort where we really could collect that data from the Jewish schools. Um, but from what we know and from what we see, and also even just through our support group for family members, there is. A real issue in the Jewish community—not just alcohol, though alcohol is very prevalent—and and anything I've seen in terms of studies, alcohol is actually a bigger problem in the Jewish community than national averages. Um, and we're talking about binge drinking, past thirty-day use, um, you know, drinking amongst our teens. And that's a lot of that is because it's kind of sanctioned by Jewish ritual, Purim and Shalom Shalamsachors and Lachayim's and Simcla Torah, you name it, you know, it's so prevalent. Just kiddish on Friday night is so prevalent in our cultural and in our religious rituals. Um, it becomes sanctioned, and it really kids are are using it at a much earlier age in many cases. Now with the legalization of marijuana, that is becoming a huge issue in the Jewish community as well. Um, we have ten educational presenters, those are young Jewish people in recovery who go into the schools they don't just tell their story, they tell their story, but they also combine it with what, I'm, what I refer to as our educational curriculum, the science behind addiction, how it happens, what happens to the brain and body when you introduce substances, what are the particular substances that we're talking about, nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana being the three most prevalent amongst our teens. And all of our educational presenters who are in recovery, including my daughter, started their use before the age of 14. So you know, that journey is not an overnight journey. You don't take a drink of wine, a kiddish, and then suddenly the next day you wake up and you're an addict. But it is something that does hijack our brains over time, especially young and developing brains, which don't fully mature until their mid-20s. Um, and what we're looking at now is, you know, not just teens becoming addicted later as they use and what they think is casual experimentation or self-medication or the many other reasons why teens use substances. But in our support group we have many spouses who have joined us who are there for their spouse who is addicted to and a variety of substances. I mean anything from cocaine to opioids, painkillers, marijuana, alcohol. The biggest issue is accessibility. Um, It is incredibly accessible to anybody and again with the legalization of marijuana marijuana has now become that much more available to to our youth um, and also in different forms edible forms that are often mistaken as harmless but the perception of harm in general because of the legalization of marijuana has gone down tremendously so our teens are are out there using marijuana and i I would venture to say that marijuana is going to become a bigger issue at some point than alcohol
0: I agree with you. I mean, I see that the phone calls that I get from people that know that I've, you know, my story and are looking for guidance, you're seeing the numbers are are much higher. And also, I wonder if this there's a statistic to show this, but we're seeing also a lot of cannabis-induced psychosis and mania that's being caused by the pot that's being used much yes. more than ever before. That's way more common.
1: Right. Correct. Well, Which the potency is- of THC now is, is, you know, through the roof. I mean, it used to be um, THC levels were about 5%, 4%, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now in edible forms and in concentrates, they can exceed 85 to 90%. So you're looking at a level of potency that we have never seen before and its exposure to the brain. Again, the brain is developing, making connections through our teenage and, and early 20s. So that use while the brain is making those connections um, combined with, again, like you said, you know, triggered psychosis and other issues, anxiety, depression, and it's a catch 22 because there are many, many teens who will tell me, oh, I have anxiety, so I smoke weed to calm down, or I have depression, so I use, you know, weed to feel better. And what they don't realize, it is probably counterproductive. It's probably making things worse. Yeah. So, and at some
0: point it does, and they either have to go to something stronger. It stops giving them the, the, what they need. They need something stronger, or they go through a cannabis (laughs) induced psychosis. Cause when you have those dual diagnoses, when you're dealing with a depression or anxiety, mental health challenge of some sort, and you mix in hot the THC and all that just doesn't do well for the brain for many people, not for all, but for many people. Um, you mentioned that you go into 50 different schools. I'm curious, What kind of schools are these? Are these Yeshivish Modern Orthodox? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I I I hate
1: stereotyping because I I know. (laughs) I know we do it all the time, but I hate doing it. Um, I mean, most of them I would say fall into the modern Orthodox category. Um, we are in several different communities. We're we're really we're based in New Jersey um and really spread our wings in New Jersey and New York and Philadelphia. Um, we were in South Florida. We are likely going to Silver Spring. We are going to Cleveland. We've been in Chicago. Um, we are really looking to bring this programming to as many Jewish schools. I have Solomon Schechter's. I have Hebrew schools that have contacted us to come for their Sunday school program. Um, so what about, non- yeah, what about ahead,
0: base yakovs? Base are there are you going into base Yaakov's? Are you going into any yeshivas that are not The ones that you mentioned. I'm just, I just want to know. Honest answer. Um, We've tried.
1: We've tried. We've tried. And I've had many, many people either contact me behind the scenes and say, "We have a problem. I'd love to get you in, but I don't think the administration's going to go for it." Um, I've had. I I I think that either there is an ignorance to the issue. I don't wanna say this is everybody. And again, I'm not gonna stereotype. There's either an ignorance to the issue. They're not really aware of what's going on, how prevalent it is. Um, kids can hide very easily what they're doing. It can also be, you know, other mental health issues that are going on that could lead to substance use. And we, we address that as well. It's not just your kids are on drugs and therefore we wanna come in. It's, you know, this is something that they're being exposed to. We wanna educate them. I always tell, we do parent workshops also in faculty training. I always tell parents who say, you know, you're going into my kid's school and you're talking to them, why? And I turn around and say to them, when you taught them to cross the street, did you wait until they were 15? Did you take them to the crosswalk by the hand at 15 and say, here's the light, here's the little man. Now you can walk across, look both ways, wait till the light turns, you know, green, red, whatever. Or did you do it when they were five? And I said, we are really just teaching our kids to cross the street safely. It's not a matter of if they're going to be exposed, it's when. So, so the question is, to- that they,
0: right. But let me encourage you to say, a lot of them will say um, the reasons that they're you know, objecting to bringing this kind of awareness to, to their schools and kind of education is that they may believe that you're kind of giving them this information and they're like, oh, they maybe never thought of alcohol before. And now you're putting that idea in their head and you know they might take it into consideration it's like this whole idea about cutting where they say that you know a lot of kids learn that it's a learned behavior whereas Mm -hmm. many of them are like well if you're going to come in there start talking about alcohol oh they might say oh maybe we should try it this could be fun if there's other teens trying it i mean i'm not buying that but what would you answer so that's where the ignorance
1: part comes in that's that's you know where they're kind of not looking at the problem as it exists. I mean, and and again, not to stereotype, but we know in Yeshivish communities, alcohol is very prevalent. I've had many Rebbeim tell me that kids are drinking. They're drinking at Lachaims, and maybe they don't think there's any harm in it. Maybe they think it's okay for a twelve-year-old to have a shot of scotch. Um, you know, I don't. I, I think there. I think you're right. I think there's a fear we're going to introduce ideas to them my explanation is they're already seeing it. They already know it's around them. They already are hearing about it. Um, then you have the kind of outside factor where outsiders coming in, they don't want outsiders coming in. They want to handle it themselves. They want to handle it internally. In their I, think he, I think the more insular community, the more you know, you know, you face that. I will tell you in our support group, we could have anybody from an intermarried secular couple to, we've had, you know, vision in our in our support groups. So it runs the gamut. Very yeshivish people are coming to us privately and saying, you know, from various communities, I don't wanna name anybody, but you know, from various communities where you think, oh, that's, that's you know, really black hat yeshivish. And they're coming to us and saying, there's, there's addiction in my family, my spouse, my son, my daughter, my sister, whatever it is, they're, they're coming to us with their stories I think the sad reality is, and again, I hate to stereotype, I know I said that four times already, but I think there's more shame and stigma in those communities, and it prevents people from coming forward. I think that people have clearly told me, I can't talk to my friends, I can't talk to my family, I can't talk to my rabbi, I can't let anybody know this is going on and this becomes their only outlet, thank God they've found us and thank God they have an outlet and a safe place to to get help from themselves because as you know, addiction is a family disease and it impacts the entire family. So those people are crying for help, but the fact that they can't find it within their community and the fact that the schools are not willing to open their doors to let that education come in, I, I do find that troubling and scary I'm not sure there's
0: an answer except to keep knocking at the door. I agree with that. You know, what we're seeing now is, is that um, there a lot of these girls are, and I'm talking about females where, you know, when I was growing up, alcohol was not a thing in our world. I mean, I'm sure there was addiction then, but I'm saying none of us were drinking. It wasn't even considered okay. Um, at this point, it's very different. Girls are going to seminary specifically in Israel. They have access and um, it's happening. And it's happening across the board to the really good seminaries and not such great seminaries. Everyone has has some point where their friend is doing it and they are being, uh, you know, challenged with, do I do this? Do I take that drink? Do I go with my friends? And having that education piece of it will help them have the tools they need to be able to understand it better and be there for a friend in need. And. It's just, it boggles my mind that people don't see this. Our kids know about alcohol and drugs. They're, you know, if your child made it to 12th grade and hasn't been offered a joint yet or a drink, it's a miracle. So like, it's probably too late at that point. You know, it's never too late. I, I want to say that it's never too late, but it's it's just, it's very frustrating. For, it's very frustrating for me. Do you mind to share with us some of the, you know, you're going into schools In the schools that you're going into, are you, I mean, it may be hard to measure this, but do you have any, proof or, or knowledge of how this may have helped those students that are listening or hearing any anything at all that you know maybe somebody listening can say well you know we really need to get this into our schools but what like sharing the benefit of going of i have
1: i have too many stories to share we don't even have enough time to share all the stories i have we we really do have an impact on on the school i had it. um so in i'll give you a few scenarios um i had one situation where a dad called me and his son was in eighth grade and he was over another kid's house and the kids' parents were out for a Shabbos walk and the son, other child said, my parents have alcohol, why don't we try it? And he said, I don't, I don't really want to. And then he came home and he told his father, I had a speaker from CCSA and what she told us was that you're not telling on somebody, you're potentially saving their life and I want to help this boy and I don't want him drinking. I think he was offering him tequila. So we're not just talking like a you know little sip of Rashi, <laughs> um, Moscato. Um, and that was one very real situation. The father happened to know me. He's from a different community, but he happened to know me and he called me up and I just want to share this with you. This is what happened. You know, my son really felt wow. empowered to ask for help, to find the language to come forward. Um, fast forward a couple months later, I get a call from a guidance counselor from one of the middle schools we went to. And she said, I just want to thank you. Right after the presenter left, two girls came to my my office and they said, you know, same thing. We always thought this was telling on somebody. We just want you to know we have a friend. Her parents are going through a divorce. They, knew, they had an eye on this girl anyway because of the situation with the parents. Um, she's hanging out with high school boys and she's drinking and she's smoking weed with them. And we're worried. So, again, empowering the kids to come forward, also to not make them feel, I mean, in eighth grade, can you imagine carrying around that burden that you know this about a friend and you just don't know what to do with this information and you're worried and you're scared. Um, I've had high school kids come up to me after a program. I don't speak in the program, but, you know, and I'm not the presenter, but they'll come to me and say, you know, I, I smoke weed because I get very anxious whenever I go out and I don't know what to do. And, you know, and I have depression and anxiety and I will have conversations with them and say, Are you seeing a psychiatrist? Are you on medication? Do you know if it's okay to have weed with your medication? And encourage them to have that conversation. Um, We have one particular story, which, which, you know, all of them touched my heart, but this one in particular, we had a presentation. Um, My associate director was there on the ground. She's a clinician and she was collecting index cards. We ask the kids to give us anonymous questions and we have thousands and thousands of these cards. And that's part of the data that we collect. What is most pressing on our kids' minds? What are they asking about? And when I tell you they they know they're exposed to things because these index cards indicate very, I mean, I don't, half the time we don't even talk about something and we get a question about it, you know, what are mushrooms? <laughs> what, what's math? <laughs> um, so, you know, they're getting that information from somewhere. Collecting the cards happened to be a young man was sitting there doing his card last Um, again they're anonymous so normally we can't identify who it is, but he kind of waited till the end and handed it in. And the card said something along the lines of I'm smoking weed and I vape and I don't care about myself anymore and I wish I could quit and my parents would kill me if they found out but I don't care about myself anymore. And it was a really, really troubled sad card. And um, you know, our our associate director took the card and she saw the boy because he handed it right to her. And it could have been a cry for help, you, you know, whatever it was, but she basically went to the guidance counselor and said, if I can identify where this came from, would you want me to tell you who it is and can we intervene somehow? And the guidance counselor said, you know what? Why Why don't you meet with the boy if you can find him and talk to him and see what you can, you know, information you can gather and then I'll talk to him afterwards. Fast forward three months later, we were back in the school for another reason. And, you know, our associate director said to the guidance counselor, how's my friend? How is he doing? And she goes, amazing. She goes, after you left and you spoke to him, I spoke to him. I called the parents, brought the parents in. We got the kid into therapy. He's dealing with his underlying issues. He's dealing with his substance
0: use. And that may be someone's life that we saved. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. There's no question. You know, we are giving them language around a topic that they don't have language for and when we normalize it and say it's okay and then say here is some things you can do about it it's it is like it is like giving them a way to help themselves and and i'm sure i I can only imagine how impactful it is and you also mentioned how you bring in people that have been there so you have you have presenters that are i guess people and we can tell us a little bit about these presenters and who they are and not obviously their names but like what are they sharing
1: Sure. So, so there are various ages, but they're all, you know, fairly young, um, very relatable. They've all grown up in the, you know, Jewish community, Orthodox Jewish community. Um, they are not necessarily from now, but they speak the language and they understand the culture and very much put themselves in the position of the kids themselves. I mean, they will say things like I sat where you sat. I listened to somebody like you and I thought this doesn't apply to me. And little did I realize that, you know, what I was doing in high school, using weed once in a while, drinking once in a while was already hijacking my brain and taking me down this path to full-blown addiction, which happened later in life. And here's what happened. We then bring in the educational piece of it, which is how does addiction happen? What's the science behind it? How do substances affect the brain and body? You're, You're still making connections. What are some coping skills we can use, peer pressure, refusal skills, all again at age appropriate, stage appropriate levels, you know, from sixth to 12th grade. And the presenter will infuse their personal journey throughout that presentation, keep on bringing it home. You know, addiction happens when you introduce a substance. Addiction, you know, it takes time, but this is what happens in the cycle of addiction. And then they'll say, and that's what happened when I did X. This is what happened when I tried weed or I smoked, you know, I drank. Um, And they're very real. We do not scare the kids. We do. It's not about scare tactics. This isn't, you know, the 1980s where Nancy Reagan said, you know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs with the eggs frying in the frying pan. That's old school. Um, What we do is very honest and very real. It also, again, gives them language. It makes them feel safe. It empowers them to hopefully make healthy decisions. And we will say to kids, you know, You may be thinking, I'm never going to try drugs. I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do anything. And that's okay. That's great. But look around the room, one of your friends, even a relative, a loved one. And we've had many kids come up to us and say, you know, my mother takes painkillers or drinks a lot of wine or my father vapes all the time or smokes weed. What do I do? Um, Or an older sibling. So somebody in your life will probably struggle with this at some point. You will come across this. and, And what can you do about it? How can we help you? Not only understand and have an education about what can happen, but also how to help somebody else, how to take responsibility. And again, at an age-appropriate, stage-appropriate level. I think the thing that really comes across in our presentations, um, and I think our presenters get a lot of credit for doing this, is that we're not talking about kids being bad because they use substances. My daughter will say very clearly that she had friends in high school who did not use substances at all. And that she wishes they had said something that she wished they would have saved her years of misery. It would have saved her, you know, a battle for her life, literally. But she said at the time, she was very afraid to come forward and say she was struggling because she was afraid of being labeled a bad kid. And that other parents would say, don't hang around with that Ilana Foreman. She's a bad kid. She's a bad influence. And what we say now to kids when we speak to them is drugs do not make you bad substances don't make you bad if you use them, but they are dangerous. And there's a very big difference. And and taking that shame and that label away also helps them look out for each other.
0: What do you think your daughter would have appreciated them that her friends would have said to her? Like what, like what, what specifically could they have done that would have been helpful to her?
1: I think she wishes they had gone to somebody, a trusted adult. We always talk about going to a trusted adult, whether it's your parents, a guidance counselor, a rabbi, a teacher, somebody, somebody in your life. Um, I think she she would have appreciated that. And she's asked all the time, wouldn't you have been angry? And her answer is, yeah, I would have been really angry. But better to be angry and alive than, you know, what she struggled with later. Um, And she's lost many, many people to overdoses and many people that she's known in treatment. So this is a very real, very dangerous thing. And it and again, it doesn't happen overnight, but we are trying to prevent it from happening altogether. I think she also wishes that those friends who really saw that she she and again, she wasn't outwardly struggling. She was a straight A student, captain of her soccer team, founder of her chess team, got into an honors program in college. I mean, outwardly and popular and friends and adjusted and all that. So it wasn't like she was out really struggling, but her friends who knew what was going on, I think she feels in some way, maybe if she could have spoken up or, or they could have spoken up, you know, it could have averted a lot of what happened later on in college for
0: her. Right. I wonder though, because I mean, I hear that, but at the same time, I also wonder, because I feel like if somebody isn't ready for the help, they're not going to get there. They kind of need to kind of come to their reality of like I want to get help. I want to help myself. I want I want I want this to get better. And so it may have, you know, shortcut a little bit, but ultimately she kind of needed to go through what she went through. So I think what would you say to that? Like, you know, yes, they come to, if, if these kids came to the teacher and said they're using how could the teachers really help this child? I mean, maybe they can get him more therapy and more help, but ultimately that person or that child that's struggling or that teen needs to kind of come to it on their own. So she always
1: describes it as emotional dependence preceding the physical dependence on the substances. And the physical dependence really came in college. It came later. Um, And perhaps had it, had there been more intervention, and again, she was seeing a therapist during high school. It wasn't like she was, you know, absent any kind of mental health help. She was struggling with anxiety. She was struggling with depression um, there's always a comorbidity with addiction. It's never a standalone condition.
0: Is that, is that true? Cause I am still looking for the data on that, you know, they, in the, in, in the world, I I, mean, I I have yet to meet somebody that, that said to me, uh, it was just, you know, all of a sudden one day I just became addicted. It just seems like people medicate self-medicate and then figure out how that feels better. And that's where it, it turns into a bigger issue.
1: Yeah. It can, I mean, it can be any number of comorbidities, but, um, but yeah, there's typically some other mental health issue going on. It doesn't necessarily have to come from self-medication. There can be other reasons. Um, but I think that she feels maybe in those intervening years. And again, it, it, you're right. There is a certain level of wanting that help. And she was seeing a therapist. And perhaps, you know, she was too young to recognize that she was, that the experimentation she was doing was taking this path. But um, I think had it been more brought to our attention, we didn't even know what was going on. We had no idea. So, and her therapist didn't know and her friends who did know and other ones that only ones that did know, again, they might not have seen it as a problem. They might have just said like, we're a little bit worried about Ilana. She's drinking on the weekends at someone's house, you know, every Shabbos afternoon kind of thing or almost every Shabbos afternoon. She used to go to one particular friend who had an older sibling. And and she wasn't there every week. So it definitely wasn't a weekly thing, but that friend's older sibling supplied them with alcohol and ultimately supplied them with weed as well, occasionally. So that experimentation took place in that house. And I know the family, very good family, very wholesome family. I had to use the word good, wholesome family who we trust and we really had no idea. So I think when she looks back, I think she feels like there was a certain group of friends that- had an idea that you know she was she was engaged in these activities and they weren't and maybe if they had said something to the guidance counselor, you know, to a teacher, to us, um,
0: maybe you could have helped. Could we, if-
1: have avo- could we have avoided? I don't know. You know that hindsight's twenty twenty. Could we have avoided it entirely? I don't know. But before that became an emotional dependence, and her and she became reliant on it, and before and then when it turned into a physical dependence and an and an addiction. Perhaps, perhaps we could have circumvented it.
0: Who knows? Exactly. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your support group because you mentioned it a few times. Um, I I belong to Al-Anon, so I know the, you know, how Al-Anon works. How is your group like Al-Anon and how does it differ?
1: I mean, we have a lot of um, people who also go to Al-Anon who come to our group. Um, I think the things they get out of our group that they're not getting from Al-Anon, first of all, it's a Jewish group. so. Culturally, you know, being, speaking the same language, understanding, you know, what does it mean when your child doesn't keep Shabbos or doesn't keep kosher or, you know, kind of that, not that everybody's religious in the group, but many people are. So immediately not having to explain to somebody what it means that, you know, my son is in rehab and he's not eating kosher food and he's you know not keeping Shabbos anymore. Um, and not having to explain to people why that matters or doesn't matter. Um, there is that bond that we kind of all understand each other immediately. It is a more informal group than Al-Anon. There's not, it's not 12-step base, number one. And number two, um, you know, it's a bunch of Jews in a room. So <laughs> it's more informal people interrupt each other, you know. I mean, we're, we're very good about letting people have their time to share and everybody shares. I think what's really um, unique about it, really it's from people from across the country, various communities, you name the community, we might have somebody in there. It's unique because there are parents and there are spouses and there are siblings and there's actually, you know, and we had an aunt at one point who had a niece who was struggling with addiction. We've had children who have parents who are struggling with addiction. Um, so the qualification really is any loved one who is struggling with substance use or addiction. And I have thought from time to time to divide the group up, you know, one group for spouses and one group for parents and the way they interact with each other and help each other. I have one father of a young man who has been struggling for many, many years. And I have one wife who has a husband who is in recovery and, you know, they support each other. It's not the same relationship, but it's the same issue. And they really have found a bond that is beautiful to watch unfold. We have new people coming all the time now because of that BRS panel, the one in in, uh, Boca with Rabbi Goldberg. So we've had people contact us. I was also on um, headlines, Halakha headlines. I've had people contact me because of that. So when the word gets out, we get a surge of people contacting us which is beautiful not everybody joins um i kind of make a joke sometimes you know this is like a shiddach, go out with us three times and you know if you like us you can keep on going out with us but um and i can't really make that joke in in, in an al anon meeting <laughs> so that's another reason why it's different but we we it's an online virtual group we meet every other week on wednesdays and again you know it's it's really become a family for a lot of these people and in some cases they're only
0: family that knows what's going on. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm sure it's helping so many people. If if there was somebody listening right now who has a loved one that's, that is right now using an, an addiction, what would you want to share with this family member? What would be something that you could, you know, help, kind of like a supportive message to them at this moment as their loved one is struggling and they're struggling. And like you said, it's a family disease what would your message be to them
1: uh, my first message is you're not alone that there are many other people whether you realize it or not and that's something that we struggled with 6 years ago that we felt very isolated and very alone and one of the reasons why we started the organization and are doing what we're doing was born out of that feeling of we're the only ones so you're not the only ones um you're definitely not alone and as far as a message of hope um Somebody in our group, I'll quote, who always says, where there's life, there's hope. There's always hope that somebody will find their way, even in the darkest moments when you think there's absolutely no chance whatsoever. People do find their way back from this, and it's not something that you can control, and that's the three C's of Al-Anon right there. You, You didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. It's not in your control, but if you stand by that person support their healthy choices, keep the relationship as best you can, it Is it is our hope that the person will turn around. I know that my daughter in her recovery said a lot of the reason why she felt she could recover is because we just kept on saying, we're standing by you. We're here for you. Even if she couldn't reciprocate in the moment and say in the moment, you know, I appreciate it, or I love you too, or you know, we just, we, we stood by her and we got that advice early on, maintain the relationship as best you can. And it took a long time for her to repair her relationship with us and certainly with her siblings, but we are closer to her now than we ever were. And I would argue that she's probably closer to her siblings than she ever was.
0: That's beautiful. And right there is a difference also a little bit nuanced with Alanon, because some of the, um, I don't want to say teachings, but some of the message of Al-Anon is, is that it'll detach with love. When you're deta- detached with love, but you don't have to, you could love them, but you don't have to love their substance abuse or what they're doing. And like, you can create boundaries and it's as Jewish parents or as Jewish spouses, it's really challenging to not, to cut your child out or to create this boundary where you're leaving your child in the street. It's It's just, The opposite of what Tyra and Yiddishkeits about, you know, so finding that that balance is really hard, but just going to say that we, we talk about that also. I mean, we had support group last night
1: and it was all about boundaries and self-care. And you can, you can detach with love. Doesn't necessarily mean kicking your kid out in the street. If you There are families who have said for the health of my family, my marriage, my other children, whatever it is, I can't have that person in my life. That's okay. We don't, I don't think it's antithetical to what we feel is, you know, Jewish values or or good parenting or good, being a good spouse. Um, I think boundaries and self-care are so important and anybody out there who is struggling, I would emphasize that. You have to make the decisions that are right for you. Loving our daughter and standing by her didn't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean enabling for sure. You're not enabling. Right. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean being a doormat doesn't mean that, you know, you have to let the person walk all over you and take your money and, you know, abuse you emotionally. Um, I think what it really means, and I agree with you, detach with love. I think it means that you have a journey. You have to recognize this is also a journey for you that, and especially when your loved one is in recovery, our recovery is also important and it lags behind our loved one. It takes us longer to get ourselves back on track. And not to have so much PTSD around what's going on with our loved one, and not to be, you know, attached by an umbilical cord with our children, <laughs> whatever's happening with them. There's a lot of boundaries and separation, and making good choices for ourselves, which I think are so so necessary. Um, but I think it is important to understand that when you, when I say maintain the relationship, maintain the relationship does not mean condoning their using, and we don't preach that at all. We we right. had a parent parent on last night who is worried that their child is using something that might be laced with fentanyl and is afraid they're gonna overdose and die. And we said, then say that, that's okay. And don't give them money because you don't say, I can't give you money because I don't want you using it on drugs and I can enable your decisions. And
0: I'm telling you right now, you're terrifying me because this is a real issue out there. But you can give them, a, you can give them food and you can give them a, a roof over their head. You don't, you know, you, that's what I'm, I'm talking about. Like you can create a boundary of, you know, staying connected to them and um, and not enabling at the same time. I think that's really an important piece of it. My prayer and hope is, is that our schools will start bringing in uh, your education program into their schools because I think it's so needed. I mean, the numbers are telling us different stories than what they'd like to believe. And I think it is very dire and very important for us to bring this kind of awareness. And is there anything else that you'd like to share with anyone listening?
1: I want to to thank you so much for having me. And if anybody needs help, if anybody's interested in bringing the program to their schools or wants to join our support group, or just wants more information, they can certainly contact us. It's info at jewishccsa.org, I-N-F-O at jewishccsa.org. And we're here for you.
0: And I will put that in the show notes as well so that people can reach out and get the help that they need. Thank you so much for your time.